Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Julia Spurs Moving Markets podcast. It's Friday, the 19th of January, and my name is Helen Freer. So a better day for equities yesterday. The major markets staged a bit of a comeback rally. On today's show, I'll be talking about all the latest market news with Lucia Chachulovic. Tim Gagey is also here, so I'll be getting his latest thoughts on currencies and metals. And after the launch of our market outlook for 2024 last week, our head of funds advisory, Adrian Yezval, is also on the show this morning to talk about alternative investments. But first up is Lucia. Good morning, Lucia. Good morning, Helen. So stocks staged something of a comeback rally yesterday with the world's largest technology companies leading stocks higher. Can you tell us um, a bit more about this? Sure. So stocks in Europe and the US were higher yesterday. And as you said, Helen, it was the mega cap tech space that drove stocks higher. The Nasdaq 100 reached an all time high. There was some company specific news, such as Apple, which climbed on an analyst upgrade, or TSMC, the semiconductor company, which gave a bullish outlook and as such underscored expectations for a bounce back in smartphone chip and computing demand. More generally, fund managers seem to be going all in on tech stocks. There were reports that hedge funds are holding the highest level of net long Nasdaq 100 futures in almost seven years. And when it comes to stock buying, Bloomberg reports that a technical gauge that measures the momentum to buy or sell stocks signals that the bulls are still stepping in to snap up shares. Okay, interesting. And yesterday we got the latest US jobless report, which showed that initial jobless claims last week were at their lowest since September 2022. Could you shed some more light on the latest numbers maybe, and perhaps also how treasuries have reacted? Yeah, so initial applications for US unemployment benefits unexpectedly dropped last week, dropping below all estimates in a Bloomberg survey. And this really underscores the resilience of the labor market. While this weekly figure tends to be volatile, especially around holidays, the four-week moving average of initial applications painted a similarly strong picture. And of course, market participants look to such data for clues as to where interest rates are headed. And yesterday, it seemed that traders were unfazed by the data. While Treasury yields spiked in the immediate aftermath of the jobs report, the move quickly lost steam. Overall, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note rose by around six basis points and now stands at around 4.16%. Coming back to Europe, Italy made some headlines yesterday when it was reported that the country was planning to sell its stake in any. What's the story there, Lucia? Yeah, so taking a step back, Italy is trying to reduce its huge debt, which stands at around 140% of output. The country is facing low growth and continued high interest rates this year, which are hampering its efforts to reduce its debt burden. And so there's a privatization push in the country. Overall, Italy aims to sell around 20 billion euros worth of state-owned stakes by 2026. As for any in particular, there are reports that Italy is looking to raise around 2 billion euros from the sale of its stake there. However, this is not yet confirmed and could change, of course. Now, we haven't talked about overnight action in Asia yet. So what's happened there? Were Asian markets able to follow the US and Europe and trade higher? 
Yes, there were. Asia-Pacific markets were mostly higher with Taiwan leading the gains, but the Hang Seng index is down around 0.7% and the Chinese CSI 300 index is hovering around 0%. Investors there assessed Japan's December inflation numbers overnight, which hit the lowest level since June 22 cooling to 2.6% from 2.8% in November. And this is the last key data out of Japan before its central bank holds its first monetary policy meeting of 2024, which starts on the 22nd of January. All right, now let's move on to commodities. Oil is steady after closing at a three-week high, right? Yes, that's right, Helen. Brent has been trading around $79 a barrel, while WTI has been around $74. Of course, the tensions in the Middle East are pushing prices higher, and so is the decline in U.S. inventories, actually, which is providing further support. But in general, the International Energy Agency forecasts that the oil market will be well supplied this year, and this is still holding prices back. Meanwhile, gold is heading for its biggest weekly loss since early December, as investors are rethinking their bets on the prospect of interest rate cuts. Okay, and I see today's economic agenda looks rather light. What's going to be in focus today, do you think? So we've just received German's producer price index, which came in at minus 8.6% year-on-year in December. And we've also just had UK retail sales data, where the figures, including automotive fuel, came in at minus 2.4% year-on-year, which is less than the expected 1.1% gain. Other than that, we will get the University of Michigan sentiment data as well as existing home sales figures from the U.S. later today. As for equities, futures are mostly in the green at the moment, so let's hope for a happy end to the week. Great. Thanks very much, Lucia, for the roundup this morning. Thanks for having me, Helen. Now, Tim, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Helen. Thank you. So what on earth has been going on this week in the world of currencies? Markets seem to be all over the place. Yeah, it's been a rather turbulent few days, hasn't it? The markets seem to have continued to try to absorb the flows of last year. And the US data, which has been quite mixed, but certainly not a clear indicator of a central bank that is about to start aggressively cutting rates. Fed commentary has been, if anything, more on the hawkish side of things, or at least neutral. So I think those rather wacky predictions of 150 basis points for the Fed that we were hearing not that long ago, and even 225 basis points of cuts in the case of UBS, who might want to make sure their carbon monoxide detectors are up to date, seem extremely unrealistic right now. However, other countries and central banks are also seeing expectations being adjusted. UK CPI came in 20 basis points above forecast, while the ECB aren't really suggesting any kind of aggressive cutting path either. So the initial surge into dollars at the start of the week has more or less fizzled out, really. One thing I find quite interesting is that the US 10-year is at its highest level since mid-December, and yet the dollar index is basically flat since Tuesday. And actually, even without this terrible yen move, it might even have recovered somewhat, Eurodollar being about 30 pips or so up on Wednesday's low, with cable even back to almost 127. Rates are no longer totally correlated to FX then? Well, they are, but I think what we have to be careful is not to look at one country's rates in a vacuum, which is something the market tends to do. So we have seen some big moves this week, and the most obvious one was a very much weaker yen, as we heard. So I think here we have a clear story of one central bank on a resolutely, well, easing path, I mean, such as uh, they are already easing so phenomenally, Bank of Japan, and other central banks, the Fed, 
Bank of England, ECB, where expectations of cuts have been very much moderated. So, as would make sense, the yen sold off, not just against the dollar, but also euros, pounds, and well, quite a few other currencies as well, really. Rates do matter. And it is sometimes the case, as I said, that only US rates matter. But at the moment, the market seems slightly more able to remember that rates are relative, not absolute, when we talk about FX anyway. I was a bit surprised that metals did not take a more serious hit this week, uh, particularly gold, although in fairness, I did realise that we were at the same level as mid-December in both the US 10-year and gold. So maybe everything is more in line than what I think. But nonetheless, I'm not convinced there's too much more upside in gold from here. And how about the Swiss franc? That saw a decent move. What was behind that? Yeah, well, the Swiss franc was easily the best performing currency in G10 in 2023, and actually one of the best performing currencies globally, only being beaten by a few uh, uh, LATAM currencies. And that was in no small part due to the huge surge we saw right at the end of the year. This move seemed to be due to some year-end demand for the Swiss franc. I've not really fully understood what it was all about. It looked excessive, and indeed, it ultimately turned out to be. Furthermore, and probably more importantly, on Wednesday, Swiss National Bank President Jordan made some very clear remarks about the Swiss franc and how strong it is. Specifically, the strength of the franc is bringing down inflation, and that recently the franc has actually been appreciating in real terms. That is to say, outstripping the inflation differential Switzerland has with other countries. This sounds to me like the wording of a central banker who is ready to ease, whether that is by cutting rates in line with other central banks, or perhaps by focusing on the currency itself, stopping sales of foreign currencies, even buying some foreign currencies at what are quite nice levels. So as a result, the Swiss franc has returned to much more sensible levels across the board. And particularly in my favorite cross of sterling against Swiss franc, we are back firmly above 110 in the range where we traded for most of 2023. We have seen a lot of continued interest in switching loans from expensive currencies like the pound, dollar, euro, into the cheaper funding of Swiss francs. And we think here this is still a really interesting idea to look at. And just lastly then, what opportunities are you seeing at the moment? We're watching closely here for the right moment to sell a few dollars. I would not do this against the franc, as I mentioned, nor the yen, despite the levels, but I would take advantage of any further dollar rallies to buy some euros, some pounds, maybe some Aussie dollars and Canadian dollars. Still think later in the year we could see a weaker dollar. Reverse convertibles for dollar cash can also look good here. And I still like long pounds against Swiss francs, as I mentioned, and indeed this idea of switching uh, loans into Swiss francs I think is really interesting. And in many ways, it's an easier position to take on now, now we're back in the range, than when we were at much nicer levels, but looking down the barrel of a very strong and seemingly free-falling franc at the end of December. Still love playing the range in platinum. It's a wide range, sort of 900 to 1,000, broadly speaking. It's stabilized again. And if you can again look at a reverse convertible, strike below 900 and a half decent coupon, I think that's pretty attractive. And looking further afield, the Mexican peso, despite good performance last year, provides a really nice yield pickup. And after this week's dollar strength, looks like a decent entry level for a return to the lows of last year. I think range trading probably is going to be the order of the next few months. That's actually a pretty good environment for us here in FX, especially looking at you know reverse convertibles again, pivot tasks, things that pick up uh, the sides of a range. So thanks very much, Helen. And as always, thanks to our listeners. and Have an excellent weekend. Very good. Thanks a lot, Tim, for the update this morning. Now, moving on to you, Adrian. Good morning, firstly. Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
So I mentioned at the beginning, we launched our market outlook for the year last week. And one of the key points we make is that we're expecting a transition to a new economic cycle this year. So with this in mind, how do you think alternative investments fit in when investors are thinking about their portfolios for the year ahead? Right, indeed. And thanks very much. So I just want to circle back quickly and and revisit alternative investments and how we think about them at JB. So there's two things. One, you know, an alternative investment can be any instrument other than really buying and holding equity or debt uh, in publicly traded markets or Indeed, it can be an investment style, like a hedge fund, for instance, that makes use of all instruments, traditional, all alternatives, but they might go short, they might use leverage and so on. So the expectation around alternative investments in a portfolio context then is that they provide a source of return that is less volatile than traditional assets, or they can generate returns, never mind the direction of the market. And that, of course, makes them valuable in a portfolio context because they can protect the portfolio when your traditional equity and fixed income portfolio is struggling or even negative. As a result, then, we always recommend a form of alternative investment exposure in order to diversify away or make sure not all of your portfolio returns hinge on market sentiment, be it equities or fixed income. Okay. um, And in terms of specific hedge fund strategies then, last year, relative value was our preference. Is that still the case this year or any changes there? Perhaps actually you could start by explaining quickly what we mean by relative value strategies. Right. So, yeah, I think the fundamental thing to think about with hedge funds is that they absolutely need volatility. And Timothy mentioned that, you know, there was turbulence in in effects, which actually is great news for a hedge fund manager and a hedge fund trader. And why is volatility so important? It's because it creates dislocation and dislocation creates inefficiency and inefficiency creates opportunity if you are a skilled hedge fund trader, because you can generate returns off of those inefficiencies that are ultimately uncoupled from the market. Now, Do we expect volatility? Uh, Well, yes, after two years of increasing interest rates to lower inflation, central banks are, of course, expected to change direction this year and begin to lower rates to encourage economic growth. Based on past experience, there may be instability in certain areas uh, of the market as central banks transition from one monetary policy stage to another. And this instability means volatility, which for hedge fund, of course, means opportunity. Now, to come back to your question, what is relative value trading? Relative value traders are specialists in exploiting exploiting, mispricing in financial markets among the same or related asset classes. That can be fixed income, it can be equity, can be commodities or more. And also, importantly, relative value traders tend to have low to no market correlation, which means we don't expect them to move up and down with the markets. And thanks to those factors, we think they make sense from an opportunity point of view as well as from a portfolio point of view. Okay. Um, And are there any other strategies that you like at the moment, given the environment that we're in? Yeah, I think this is also a good environment for uh, so-called event-driven hedge fund strategies, um, especially ones that invest in stressed and distressed situations. We've already seen the funding cost of some companies with floating rate debt rise, and others will have to refinance at much higher rates than they are likely to be able to sustain. We actually estimate that around a trillion uh, in debt from companies with poor credit rating will need to be refinanced over the next couple of months and years. For an 
event-driven hedge fund, this means that they have the opportunity to buy stressed companies. Stressed companies are ones that are still performing, but they are challenged. And they will also want to buy distressed companies. These are non-performing or even bankrupt companies uh, by acquiring the debt at a discount, converting some of that debt into equity, restructuring the companies, and finally selling it or listing it on the stock exchange. The overarching thing, though, to remember is that we should focus on hedge funds that run close to no market correlation because we're in, we're in an environment where the opportunity for returns based on traders' skills is significant today. So we don't want to pay them for returns generated by mere market exposure. Okay, excellent. Thanks very much, Adrian. Great to hear your thoughts this morning. Thanks very much indeed, Helen. So that is all for today. Thank you again to today's guests and thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show and you haven't yet subscribed, then don't forget to do so. And please also leave us a review on whichever platform you like to listen on. And do join us again next week. We'll be back on Monday when Mike Rauber will be your host and he'll be talking to more of our colleagues about what is moving markets. Have a great day, everyone, and then a great weekend. Bye for now. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further other important legal information. Beyond Markets is a weekly podcast where Julius Bear experts and external speakers discuss some of the latest market developments. They share their key research and insights on today's ever-changing economic landscape and present practical advice. Search for Beyond Markets on your favourite podcast player.